0: Let's pray. God, we welcome you into this place. God, your scriptures say that when two or more are gathered in your name, that you are there. So, God, we ask you to come now. God, we pray that you give us that you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the word that you've prepared for us this morning. Lord, right now we ask that you speak. We're listening. And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning, New Life. Go ahead and take a seat. Well, hope you all had a wonderful Christmas with family and friends. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Carter. Um, yes, I'm part of this family. Um, give it up for the worship team. I'm a little bit biased. Yeah. Um, so my name's Carter. I'm the youth director here at New Life. And what's, what's cool is that I actually grew up in the youth group here at New Life, and um, in that same exact room. And now I get to be the one to minister to the students who were in the very same place that I was in all of those years ago. So it's cool to see how God has sort of made that come full circle in my life. Well, hey, I can't wait to see what God is going to do in us and through us as we look into his word this morning. So I just want to jump right in. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10— Um, Luke chapter 10, we'll start in verse 25. We're just going to jump right in this morning. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? All right, so before Jesus answers this famous question, I want to set the scene a little bit. So we've got this lawyer here. He's speaking to Jesus. And he asks this question, Hey, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? But this lawyer is smart. He's a religious lawyer, which means that it was his job to know and to understand all of the 600 plus um, laws that are written in the Torah, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus knows this about this lawyer, and so he asks him, what do you think? How do you interpret this law that you're an expert in? And the lawyer responds, love God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds, yeah, exactly. Do that, and you'll get what you're looking for. Like, okay, lawyer, you're off to a good start. You've asked Jesus a really important question, and you've given the correct answer. I don't know, maybe he's heard Jesus um, say those two commandments before, or maybe just as a lawyer, he's a really good interpreter of the law, and he came to the same conclusion that Jesus came to, that the entire law revolves around loving God and loving others. So this lawyer seems like he's off to a good start. Anybody ever asked a question, gotten the answer you were looking for, and then wish you would have just kept your mouth shut? Yeah, I'm guessing this lawyer may have been thinking that too after he asks the follow-up question in verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So anybody ever tried to justify themselves by asking a follow-up question? Like, maybe your boss comes up to you, and he says, um, how come you haven't finished your project on time? And you ask him, well, why didn't you just give me more time? Or, or husbands in the room. When your wife asks you to fix something, rather than getting up and fixing it right then and there, you just ask, can you just tell me when you want it fixed so I know when to get it done by? Um, I'm guilty of that one. Um, so this lawyer is doing the same thing with Jesus. Wanting to justify himself, he asks him, who is my neighbor. And I want you to remember that question, because we're going to come back to it. But let's see how Jesus answers this question, starting in verse 30, Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And by coincidence, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed compassion to him. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. Man, I love when Jesus does these just total mic drop moments, when he says something so opposite of what the listener was expecting. But I want to take some time to break this down this morning, because there's a lot happening in this parable, and if we take time to understand the context, then we're going to grasp more of the gravity of what Jesus just said to this lawyer, and why it was so unexpected and unprecedented. So there's three individuals that come across this half-dead body on the side of the road. You've got the priest, you've got the Levite, and then you've got the Samaritan. So let's talk about the priest first. So a priest was a role given to certain members of the tribe of Levi, specifically the ones who were direct descendants of Aaron, you know, going all the way back to Moses and Aaron. And so it was the priest's job to be the sort of like mediator between man and their sin and God and his holiness. So the priest would make sacrifices and perform all sorts of rituals that would make atonement for the sins of the Jewish people. And the important part is that priests would need to remain clean, and pure in order to continue to make these acceptable rituals before God. And so perhaps, perhaps this priest presumed that the half-dead body on the side of the road was full dead, right? And being a good priest, he knew that touching a dead body would deem him unclean and unfit for his priestly duties. So this priest, wanting to act according to the law of priesthood, which he would be expected to do, decides to walk past on the other side of the road. Perhaps this justified his actions. Now the Levite. The Levite was another member of the tribe of Levi, but the normal Levite would be like the assistants to the priests. So the Levites would know all of the laws of the priesthood, but they wouldn't be strictly held to them. So perhaps the Levite wanted to be extra sure that he didn't do anything to cause the priest to be deemed unclean. So he walked right by the presumably dead body. Or or you know what? Maybe it wasn't that complicated for the priest and the Levite. Maybe they just could have just not wanted to be bothered that day, or maybe they also didn't want to be attacked by robbers either. But either way, in Jesus' story, both the priest and the Levite, the ones who you would expect to help, walked right by the guy, half beaten, half dead on the side of the road. And then we get to the Samaritan. So first off, who is a Samaritan? Samaritan. Well, I want to give you a little bit of Old Testament history because the context here is really, really important. So way back in the Old Testament, the king of Israel, Solomon, he died. And for various reasons, the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel became divided. It was divided into the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And now more things happened in the political and theological landscape of the time period, but, but more importantly, this um, the 10 northern tribes continued to prove themselves unfaithful to Yahweh, which led to him allowing for the dispersion and the exile of the ten northern tribes of Israel. Are you with me so far? I promise, we'll get back to the neighbor conversation, but this is important context. I know you didn't expect a history lesson, but you're going to get it. So we've got the slightly more faithful southern kingdom of Israel, those two tribes. They weren't perfect either. But then we have the less faithful, dispersed, exiled, captive northern kingdom. And so more of the political landscape changed, and the northern kingdom Israelites were allowed to move back into their homeland. But naturally, it had become occupied by lots of non-Israeli people. And so the members of the northern tribe are, are moving back and intermarrying and just religiously mixing themselves with the non-Israelite people. And you can read about this in 2 Kings 17. Now, this was a big no-no for the people of Israel as God's chosen people. He had given them careful instructions not to mix with the people who were not God's chosen people and not to worship the gods of those people. And so this infuriated the southern kingdom and rightfully so. They're like, hey guys, you're claiming to be God's chosen people too, but you're turning into these half-breeds. You're ruining the sanctity of this holy nation. And so this and some other things, like the location of a new temple, for example, caused this huge rift between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, the southern kingdom was in an area called Judah, actually referred to as the kingdom of Judah. And this is where we get the term Jew from. So the southern kingdom Israelites are traditionally where we get the term for the Jewish people. And the northern kingdom was considered just like the rest of the Israelites. You've got the kingdom of Judah, the Jews, And then the rest of the israelites but one of the major cities in the northern kingdom was the city of samaria so guess where we get the term samaritan from yeah it's those northern kingdom israelites so still sort of part of god's chosen people but really looked down upon by the traditional jewish people these people of the southern kingdom. So there's this huge divide in the nation of Israel between the Jews and the really kind of hated Samaritans. The best way I can put it in the context of our culture in America today is think about the rift between the Republicans and the Democrats, right? It's a little bit like this, except a whole lot more complicated. Okay, so are you still with me? So now back to our regularly scheduled programming. (laughs) So Jesus being not only God... But racially Jewish from the tribe of Judah understood the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans better than anybody else. In fact, you guys know the story of the woman at the well? She was a Samaritan woman. Real quick, I actually want to read a few verses from that interaction because it further explains this rift that's going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. So turn, if you will, to John 4. Um, We're just going to read a short little excerpt from the story of the woman at the well. Turn to John 4, 7 through 9. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So, so everyone and their mother knows that Jews and Samaritans do not associate themselves with each other. They're like oil and water. They just do not mix. And this is where the parable of the good Samaritan that we're working through this morning really finds its weight. And so now understanding the, the hatred that existed between the Jews of which this religious lawyer was one of and the Samaritan people, I want to read again what the Samaritan does. So, so flip back, if you will, to Luke 10. and um, We'll start in verse 33. Let's read what the Samaritan does again. Luke 10:33. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed compassion on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Remember, the lawyer is Jewish. And so for Jesus to paint this sort of heroic picture of a Samaritan would have been blasphemy for this lawyer. Plus, being a good lawyer, he would have known the history of the Samaritans and how they broke God's law over and over and over again. And so this lawyer really deeply understood why Jews do not associate themselves with Samaritans. And now Luke doesn't He doesn't exactly say what the actions of this lawyer were that he was trying to justify. Remember verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So Luke doesn't tell us the actions that the lawyer wanted to justify. But I think he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? In the hopes that just maybe some people are not. And so now knowing all of this, the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans and what just took place. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the lawyer here, whose heart is just being torn apart, finding out that his neighbor is a despised Samaritan. That Jesus is telling them that he has to love even those half-breed Samaritans. I want you to put yourself in that lawyer's shoes as you think about this. If you asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, who would he say? If you asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, Who would he say? Because church, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think the point that Jesus is trying to make here is that our neighbor is not only the people that we're most likely to love. No, I think what Jesus is saying is that our neighbor is the people that we're least likely to love. You see, for a Jew in that day, they used the term neighbor only to refer to other Jews. These people that were racially and genetically and and religiously close to them. They would never fathom using the term neighbor to talk about a Samaritan or a Gentile or anybody else who wasn't Jewish. And so for them, loving their neighbor was easy when they could create the definition of neighbor. But then Jesus comes along and he says, that's not quite right. That's not quite right. See, what I think Jesus knows and what he's trying to tell this lawyer, as he's defining what it means to be somebody's neighbor. I think what Jesus is saying is that being a neighbor is not positional, it's relational. Being a neighbor is not positional, it's relational. Your neighbor isn't someone who's right next door to you, or someone of equal beliefs, or equal values, or similar characteristics. No. Being a neighbor to someone is all about being relational with them. It's all about who you choose to love. I want you to flip back a few chapters to Luke chapter 6. I want to read another interaction where I think Jesus really drives home this point of what it means to love your neighbor. So Luke chapter 6, we'll start in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Church, is that just not so convicting? Jesus is right, isn't he? It's easy to love those who love you back. But even sinners do that. So what credit is that to you? And I could go on and on telling you about people in my life who are easy to love because they love me back, right? But we all have that other list, don't we? That list of those people who are just not quite as easy to love because they don't love you back. We all have our list of Samaritans. And so, church, I want to ask you again this morning. If you asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, who would he say? You have a blank space there in your notes after that question. You may have already put someone in that blank space, but I challenge you to be vulnerable with yourself this morning because that blank space represents a soul, and that's a soul that needs to feel the love of Christ perhaps you have a coworker who just really gets on your nerves, and you know you should love him. Maybe it's someone of that other political party, or another religion. Maybe you have a friend who's stabbed you in the back just one too many times. Maybe there's a family member in your life who you just can't love anymore. We all have Samaritans in our lives. Myself included. Who is your neighbor? Now, I know you may be thinking, Carter, I understand that I'm supposed to love this person. I get it. I get it now. But how? How do I love this person when they've done X, Y, and Z to me? And that's a fair question. But that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Because it's one thing to know a truth, but it's another thing to use that truth. So, how do I love the Samaritans in my life? And the answer to that question is simple do what Jesus did do what Jesus did. Christ followers in the room, we are called to live our lives the way Christ lived his, to be like Christ, to do what Jesus did. That's why be like Christ and do what Jesus did are part of our mission here at New Life, right? To know Jesus, to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. And Jesus is the greatest example of loving the harder-to-love members of society. We see this in Matthew 9, when, he, when Jesus eats with tax collectors and other sinners. In Luke 17, he heals 10 people with leprosy. Now, these were the lowest of lows. People with leprosy were considered untouchable. Talk about the harder-to-love people. We see in Mark 10, when Jesus heals a blind beggar. In, Ju- in John 8, when he showed mercy to the prostitute about to be stoned. In Luke 23, when he forgives the criminal on the cross. And finally, when Jesus was crucified perhaps the greatest demonstration of love towards those unworthy of being loved, us. And why do you think Jesus chooses to love all of these people? It's because he sees them the way that they are. Not the way society sees them, not worthless, not sick, not broken. Instead, worthy, whole, beautiful, loved. Church, I wrote it for us this way this morning. When you see how Jesus sees You can love how Jesus loves. And so the answer to the question of how am I supposed to love that person in my life is simple. Begin by seeing them the way Jesus sees them. When you see them as unlovable, Christ sees them as loved. When you see them as unworthy, Christ sees them as worthy. When you see them as different, Christ sees them as part of his family. When you see them for all the negative things that they've ever done to you, all the ways that they've wronged you, they've hurt you, they've lied to you, they've stabbed you in the back. Christ sees them in his image, as one of his children. When we see the way Jesus sees, we can love the way Jesus loves. And so a really practical way to begin loving those Samaritans in your life is to ask yourself this simple question. What does Jesus see in them? What does Jesus see in them? I want to close this morning with reading one last verse because we've talked about the what and we've talked about the how, but not really the why. Carter, why should I love my neighbor? Why should I love the people that don't deserve it, that don't love me back? And that's a fair question too. First John 4:19 is one of my favorite verses. It's seven simple words. We love because he first loved us. There's our answer, church. That's why we love others, because in our lowest of lows, in our deepest, darkest sin, in our most vulnerable moments of brokenness and darkness, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, stepped down from glory, took on human flesh, chose to feel everything that you and I have ever felt, and in the greatest display of love in history, chose to be brutally murdered, beyond human recognition. And in his most vulnerable moment, with you and I in mind, he says, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And in history's greatest display of love, Jesus dies for you, in your place, taking on the punishment that your sin deserves. Why? Because he sees you as being worthy of, of loved. He looks at you and he says, you are my neighbor. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. God, we declare that before you this morning, that we love because you first loved us. God, we thank you that you loved us first. And it's because you loved us that we even have the opportunity to love back. God, we thank you that you sent your son to take on human flesh and bones, to feel every single thing that we've ever felt as humans. And in history's greatest display of love dies in our place. And so, God, this morning, we declare that we are going to love our neighbors, the Samaritans, the people that do not love us back. Why? Because you loved us first, God. And so God, this morning as we leave from this place, remind us to see people the way you see them. Not broken, not sick, not different, but loved. And all God's people said, amen.